Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you this morning. And uh, we're going to once again go to Luke chapter 15. And the story that uh, we've often thought of as the story of the prodigal son, but as we began to see last week, it's actually not just a story of, of one son, but there are two sons in the story. In fact, there's a third character who's the father, and it's the father that we're going to be thinking about particularly this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to uh, Luke chapter 15. And again, we're going to read just part of the story this time. We'll leave the, the last little part of the story until next Sunday. <clears throat> but we're going to read from verse 11, and uh, we'll pick up the beginning of the story that Jesus tells. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And that's all we're going to read this morning. I just want you to note, though, that that is not the end of the story. And uh, next Sunday, God willing, we will see how the story ends, uh, or doesn't end, as the case may be. Uh, but we're going to think about the third part of the story next Sunday. Probably one of the, I suspect one of the, the best known of, of C.S. Lewis's quotations is this one about forgiveness, where he says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. He was writing in the context of reflection on uh, the aftermath of World War II, where obviously uh, there'd been huge atrocities committed across Europe. And uh, this becomes a very pertinent point uh, in the aftermath of war. And he says that actually when you're dealing with situations like that, the aftermath of war or uh, other times where there's been great injustice and great evil has taken place, when you talk about forgiveness, which everyone says is a lovely idea, when you talk about forgiveness at those kind of times when uh, such evil is in people's minds, then 
Actually, to talk about forgiveness can be greeted with great anger. And maybe you found that, uh, maybe you've had that experience where, yes, you, you appreciate the nobility of forgiveness, you appreciate how, how wonderful it is, but yet you've maybe had an experience where you've suggested to a friend or a friend has suggested to you that, that the thing that you need to do in a given situation is to forgive someone. And because of the depth of the hurt that you feel and because of the extent of the wrong that you believe has been done to you, well, forgiveness isn't really a lovely idea at all. It's a very difficult thing. It's an extremely difficult thing, and it can actually, as Lewis argued, can be greeted with great anger. Because forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is difficult. Forgiveness can actually be risky. It can actually be a dangerous thing. John Wesley was once in conversation with a military gentleman who I think was attending some of his services, and this general, or whatever he was, uh, said to Wesley, he said, look, I, I don't like this idea of uh, forgiveness that Christians talk about. He, he objected to the idea of forgiveness. And he said, Mr. Wesley, I never forgive. And Wesley replied very wisely, then, sir, I hope you never sin. And it's, of course, not simply our forgiveness of other people, our forgiveness of one another, our forgiveness of people who have wronged us. It's not just that that's at the heart of Christianity. But at the very heart of Christianity is this claim that God forgives us. And so Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, and he teaches them as part of that prayer. He says, pray, and as you pray, say, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive those uh, who owe us debts. We're thinking these three weeks about uh, this amazing story in Luke chapter 15, Tale of Two Sons. And what I hope you're beginning to notice, and what I hope you will notice over the three weeks, is that this is a story of grace. It's a story of forgiveness. And as a story of grace, it seems to me that each of the three main characters in the story has something to teach us about grace. Last week, we thought about the younger son. He's the one that we tend to hear most about, uh, the one and the, the journey that he makes away, the way he rejects his father, the way that he squanders his inheritance, and how when he decides eventually to come home, his father wonderfully accepts him back. And I think what we learn about grace from the younger son is something about the reach of grace. Grace reaches further than we can sometimes imagine. And maybe for some of us, that is the most important part of this story, the realization that grace reaches further than, than we sometimes imagine. Sometimes it reaches further than we even would dare to hope. And the younger son points to that reality of grace. The Father's story that we're going to think about this morning, what I think it teaches us about grace is that grace costs more than we sometimes realize. Grace costs more than we sometimes realize. We're going to think about the cost of grace. Forgiveness is a costly thing. To demonstrate grace is a costly thing. What the Father does in this story is He pays the price for the restoration of His Son. We're going to see that there's something shocking or even scandalous, perhaps, in the way that the father behaves in the story. Now, 
scandal is written all over Luke chapter 15. If you look back at the first couple of verses, the, the setting of, of, of these three uh, little illustrations uh, of how God is, is looking for lost people, the tax collectors, the sinners are all gathering, to, are all drawing near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. There's something not right about this. If Jesus is claiming to be a rabbi, if he's claiming to talk about God, if he's claiming to represent God in any way, how can he be spending time in such close contact with a rabble like the, like the tax collectors and, and other uh, amalgamations of sinners? The Pharisees don't understand that. They think it's scandalous. They think it's shocking. And you may remember last Sunday we said that the whole idea of, of eating together uh, and, and receiving someone to share food with in a Middle Eastern setting, it's not the same as us all standing around eating our sandwiches at a church picnic. It's a, it's a gesture. It's a much deeper gesture of fellowship. Jesus is fellowshipping with these sinners who have gathered to listen to him. And there's something surprising about it. There's something shocking about it. And in the minds of the Pharisees, the religious, the religious leaders and rulers, in their minds, there's something actually scandalous about it. And I think when we start to look under the surface of the Father's story here in this, in this episode, when we start to look under the surface of that, we discover that there's actually something perhaps more than a little shocking or even scandalous about the Father's story. The Father's story really takes place in, in three parts. Uh, we'll think about the third of them next week, because the third of them is his uh, interaction with his older son. But the two parts of the father's story are very simply the first part where he allows the son to leave and the second part of the story where he welcomes the son back. Very simple. He lets him go and he welcomes him back. And I think that there, there, are, uh, there are things that we can learn about the cost, the price that the father pays in both of those parts of his story. First of all, we learn something about the father's grace by the fact that he allows the son to go. Now, this request that the son makes at the beginning that precipitates the whole story, this request to be given his share of the inheritance, which presumably was a third, as the younger son, he would have got a third of the, the family inheritance. This request is, is a, it's more than impolite. It's a shocking request that he makes to his father. One of the scholars who has helped us, I think, understand uh, a lot of the cultural background to this story is Kenneth Bailey. He's lived in the Middle East for many, many years. And uh, as, as part of his work on the, the parables of Jesus, he's gone into various Middle Eastern villages, peasant villages, and, and has told them the stories of Jesus to, to try to understand the reaction, to see how the people would react and respond to, to these stories. And when he has gone into villages and talked to groups of villagers about this request that the son makes to receive the inheritance that's coming to him, while his father is still alive, well, the villagers, pretty much all of them say, well, that just simply couldn't happen. Because what that, what that son was asking for was really an expression that he just wishes his father would die. It's a profound, painful rejection of his father. He also rejects the inheritance because when you think about it, when, when Jesus says that he gathered everything and in a few days, just in, in a fairly short amount of time, he, he headed off and got as far away as he could. When you think about it, that's how I think about it anyway, when you think about it, if it's part of his inheritance consisted of uh, land and 
animals and things in the farm. Well, how do you gather that up in a few days and take it away with you? You'd have to sell it, wouldn't you? And if he does it very quickly, you're left to, you're left to believe that he probably didn't get the best price for it. You know, it's a quick sale because he wants to get out of here as quick as he possibly can. So he takes the inheritance, he insults his father, he takes the inheritance, he sells the inheritance off outside the family, probably at, at, at below its value. He takes then what he, has, what he has made from the sale and he gets out of town as, he, as quickly as he possibly can. And then he wastes all of his inheritance on, on, on riotous living or reckless living, as Jesus calls it. That's how the son behaves. Now, Jesus' audience knew the commandments. They knew that there was the fifth commandment that said that children were to honor their fathers and their mothers. That was built into the way of life of, of the Israelites. They probably would also have known that there was a provision in Old Testament law for parents to bring a rebellious son to the court of the community leaders. And those community leaders could hand down a verdict by which the rebellious son would be stoned for his rebellion. Some of you with, with sort of awkward uh, teenage sons may be wanting to look that verse up and discuss it at the lunch table. All that to say that the, the concept of honoring parents, of honoring the older generation, was a fundamental concept in the society that Jesus was speaking to. It was built in there, even with those very severe penalties. To dishonor your father was to sin seriously. And that is what this boy has done. He has dishonored his father by saying, Father, why don't you just hurry up and die? He has dishonored him by selling the, the family inheritance off outside the family, presumably at a low cost. He, he eventually will dishonor him by going into a, a faraway place and wasting the earnings from the, the family inheritance in reckless living. He does all of those things, and as the people listen to Jesus tell this story, and they listen to this request that this boy makes of his father, they're saying, well, what's the father going to do? Is he going to take him to the court of the community leaders? Is he going to have this boy stoned? Is he going to slap this boy in the face and say, don't you dare talk to me like that? Is he going to say, I disown you, you are no longer my son? The father does none of those things. The father absorbs the pain of rejection and lets the boy go. There may be some of you, and in the past few weeks, it's university time, start of term, and so on, and there may be some of you, and you've gone through the experience in the past few weeks of seeing one of your kids go to university, maybe across the water or, or something like that, and you've, you've gone through all of the emotion, you know, the joy, the rejoicing, the glad, no, I'm only kidding. You've gone through all of the emotion uh, that, that, uh, that, that comes with that. I can remember five years ago, our younger daughter, uh, who was 18 at the time, um, went off to, to work in Southeast Asia. She went to work in a restricted access country with a Christian organization. And I remember the, she was, I think it was a Thursday she was leaving, and uh, on the Thursday morning, a couple of people from the church came around to our house, stood in our kitchen, and prayed with us. And as we all stood there in the kitchen, it, it felt, you know, it was almost, a, it was like a physical sensation. 
It felt as though someone had actually managed to stick their, their, their hand right, you know, right down my throat, and they were just grabbing my stomach, you know, tearing my heart out. It, 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 it felt as physical as that. That here was my little 18-year-old daughter who was about to head off 6,000 miles around the world. Now, she wasn't going to squander her inheritance on reckless living. She was actually going out to, to work in a restricted access country with a, with a Christian organization. But the pain of seeing her go was so vivid and so real. Some of you can identify with that. And if we can identify with that, what must it have been like for the father in this story to absorb the rejection of his son? He wasn't actually going off to university to better himself. He wasn't going off to to another part of the world where he would serve people who needed uh, some kind of charity done to them. He had spat on his father's face. He had rejected his father. What must it have been like for the father to watch the son disappear down the road, having done what he had done? I wonder if sometimes, and this maybe doesn't apply to all of us, but I wonder if sometimes we have put an emphasis on the judgment of God the seriousness of sin, moral accountability, all of which things are very, very important. But I wonder if somehow we have been in danger of putting such an emphasis on those things that we forget how deeply the Father must feel to see those to whom He has given life and breath spit in his face, and head off in a direction which he knows is only going to lead to their destruction. The compassion of a father for his lost children. I remember a few years ago when we lived in Switzerland, I used to preach in in another church on Sunday mornings, uh, but once a month in the city of Bern, the capital of Switzerland. Took the train up uh, from where we lived. I always enjoyed the train journey, an hour and a half or so, and it was Swiss trains or something else. Uh, but uh, I, I remember one morning uh, arriving in the station in Bern, and uh, it's a big, big railway station, capital city, and, and so on, lots of platforms, lots of trains, you know, cross-country trains, regional trains, and so on. And there was one of the platforms, I think it was a regional train, and there was a woman on the platform, and she was in absolute distress because Either she'd got off the train and her son hadn't and the train had gone on, or else the son had got on and she hadn't and, you know, the thing. And she's just, she just standing on the platform yelling, saying, my son. She'd lost her son because he was on the train and he was heading off somewhere else and she was left. Now, I'm sure, being Switzerland, it was all very efficient and I'm sure they got him at the next station and they were reunited probably within about 20 minutes. I wouldn't be surprised. But just that, that, that pain... And that's something that the Pharisees and the scribes did not understand. They could not understand why Jesus would spend time with these these sinners. And they could not understand how God would still value the lost. And so the father pays a price by absorbing the rejection and letting the boy go. Second thing is that the father welcomes him home. 
You'll notice uh, there's a nice little vignette of, of grace that, that comes up in this story because when the father, he's, he's waiting for the boy, you know, He's in the far country, decides he's going to go back, rehearses his little speech and so on. And as he gets closer, the father sees him. Obvious implication that he's, you know, he's kind of hoping that he's going to come back again. And when he sees him, uh, while he's still a long way off, the father sees him. He feels compassion. And then Jesus says he ran and embraced and kissed him. And you see that grace runs Grace restores with the robe and the, the ring and the, the sandals, and grace rejoices because it, it throws this party. The father runs to meet the boy. One evening, um, when we were in Port Stewart, Pauline and I went to visit a lady in our church who'd been involved in a road accident. And she was in the hospital in Coleraine. And we went to visit her, and as we were leaving the hospital, I think it was a Friday night, we were leaving the hospital, there were, there were these women coming in, you know, coming, we met them coming the, the opposite way as we were going out, they were coming in, sort of nine o'clock at night. And they'd obviously been at a wedding, they'd come from a wedding. And, and you know how women dress when they go to weddings, and I need to be careful what I say, because I have a wedding coming up in a couple of weeks, uh, but you know how women dress when, they, when, when there's a wedding. And they're these, you know, fascinators and all these, all these things, they just... You know, there they were. Obviously, they belonged in a wedding. They didn't really belong in the corridor of a hospital. And it just, just struck me that there's something odd about it. You know, you, expect, you don't really expect to see people wearing fascinators in a hospital, right? Uh, or people dressed in wedding finery in a hospital. You know, green, green uniform things or white uniform things or, or, or whatever. There's, there's certain ways that people dress when they go to hospital or just dress ordinary. But you don't put a fascinator on a whole piece of finery on to go to hospital. That's what they did. And it just struck me, that's out of place. And there are some things that look out of place. And from some of the scholars who've looked at this, this incident where the father runs to welcome his son back, they say, you know, there's something that's out of place about that. Because to the best of our knowledge, normally, generally speaking, older men, men of dignity in this culture, did not run in public. This is not Fodja Singh, who was, you know, he's 103 or something, and a couple of years ago ran the London Marathon. He's about 100, did it in six hours. You know, when we look at that in our culture, we think, isn't that, isn't that incredible? You know, what a, what a hero. Well, it wasn't really like that in Jesus' day. These men were dignified with their robes, and they weren't going to hitch up their robes and have people looking at their ankles and their shins. That, was, that would have been there was dishonor involved in that. And yet Jesus says that this man, when he saw his son, who was still a long way away, obviously hitched up his robes and he went sprinting down the road like a marathon runner to welcome his son back. He was prepared to dishonor himself to welcome the son back. You know, we tend to think that he, he did that because he, he, you know, he hadn't seen him for months or years or whatever. He couldn't wait to see him again. There's another thing that we, could, we should think about. As the, as the son makes his way back into the village, word has traveled. Word has traveled that he's been away. Word has traveled about what he has done when he has been away. Reports have, have come back. And as he comes back, what are the villagers going to do? They say, who does this guy think he is? Look at him. He would have been skinny, he would have been dirty, he would have been smelly. And here he was, having disgraced his father's family, having wasted 
his family's inheritance, probably among Gentiles, and you could actually be excommunicated for that. And here he is, and he thinks he's going to just walk back with impunity into our village, someone who has behaved in such a despicable way. And you can imagine what that walk might have been like from the edge of the village, a walk of shame. Maybe he would never even have been allowed into the village. And by running, the father makes sure that that's not a walk of shame that the boy takes as he comes home. But the father makes sure that everybody knows exactly how this boy stands. The embrace of his father, the robe has been sent for, the ring has been sent for, sandals have been sent for, all of the marks of freedom, none of the marks of slavery. And the father runs to cover that boy as he walks back home. And I think that points us to the cross. See, people look at this story and they say, well, you know, here you've got the story about the love of God, the forgiveness of God. Just all you've got to do is say you're sorry and you come back and God just accepts you and that's it. There's no need for the cross in here. And you probably know that uh, Muslims are generally taught that Jesus Christ did not actually die on the cross. In, in some way, he was extricated from that situation and he didn't actually die on the cross. And they could look at a story like this and say, well, there you go. There's no, there's, there's no need to emphasize the cross. And you probably realize that there are people who are, even you know, Christians, who are maybe increasingly uncomfortable with certain aspects of what the New Testament, in fact, the whole of Scripture teaches about the cross and teaches about atonement. You may know that Keith Getty and Stuart Townend have written uh, In Christ Alone, that they've been under pressure on, on various occasions where people have said to them, look, we really want to change one of the lines in your hymn. We'd like to include it in our hymn book, but there's one of the lines that we don't like. On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I don't like that. don't like the idea that that God is maybe wrathful and that God's wrath is poured out on his son. And we kind of wonder, well, what do we do with the atonement? And, well, wouldn't the, wouldn't the story of the prodigal son, would it just be nice if we could just preach that? And, you know, everybody's, people have run away from God and all they've got to do is come back and say they're sorry and it's fine and God will forgive them. There's no cost. But I think there is an indication of the cost in this story. Because what you've got <clears throat> is an exchange of honor and disgrace. At the beginning of the story, the son brings disgrace on himself by the way he behaves. He forfeits his honor. As he comes back and the father runs to meet him, he's there, the boy is there, disgrace, shame, and the father comes back, and by ordering the robe and the ring and the sandals, he reinstates the honor of his son. But by absorbing, first of all, the rejection, and then by hitching up his robe and exposing himself to dishonor and shame, as people would point the finger and say, look at, look at that guy, you'd think he'd have a bit of dignity. What's he doing running down the road? Especially, what's he doing running down the road to, to, to go and, and, and meet a son like that? As the father exposes himself to shame and dishonor, 
He does that so that the, the honor of the disgraced son can be restored. And there, I think, you get right into the heart of the gospel. You know what Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians? He says, Christ knew no sin, but he was made sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Our shame, his honor. He sacrifices his honor. He sacrifices his dignity by being crucified on a cross. Paul reflected on the Old Testament ruling about that, and he said, you know, everyone who's hanging on a cross is under a curse of God. The Son sacrifices his honor and dignity, takes the place of shame and disgrace, so that you and I can emerge from our shame and our disgrace, and we can be restored to a place of honor. You know that old hymn? I hadn't heard it for years, and heard it two or three years ago in a, in a church one Sunday morning. I was, I'm glad to have rediscovered it. But that old hymn, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. See, some of you are so young that you don't even, you've never even heard of it, and you're missing out. And there's a line in it, a piece in it, and it says, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned, he stood. That's what happens at the cross. Jesus absorbs the disgrace and the shame of the younger brothers and sisters who have slapped their father in the face in rejection. And in the cross, he abandons his own dignity. He abandons his own honor to run after those brothers and sisters and pay the price for their restoration. Grace is unconditional kindness that's given to an undeserving recipient at an uncomfortable cost.